Broadcasting from everywhere and nowhere, the Misfit Crew at Southfleet HQ is proud to bring you the Dive Living Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the Die Living Podcast brought to you by Softleet. Uh, this week we're talking to Dr. Charles Sidner uh, of Brayburn Farm and Ross Flynn of Left Bank Butchery. Um, as we kind of push forward into kind of deeper nutrition knowledge uh, that you know we'll be bringing through the training application, one of the conversations that's really important for us to have is on the topic of food quality. Uh, you know, not all macros are created equal, so to speak. And I think we have probably two of the best guests here today that we could have to discuss those issues, uh, you know, especially when it comes to protein, which I know is what, you know, so many of you listening to this are, are probably focused on. Um, so with that, uh, I'd like to introduce Dr. Sidner and Ross. And uh, Ross, if you want to introduce yourself real quick, give us a little background on on how you how you came to to be you know owning a butcher shop. Uh, I actually started working. Actually, I showed up on Charles Farm because I knew his daughter, and uh, just kept working there. And he let me keep working there. So. About four years later, um, decided that what we needed was to have a whole animal butcher shop. So I started in the in the agricultural world and moved over uh, to the culinary side of things. Um, and now we have a, a butcher shop in a small town called Saxbaha, and we buy all of our cows from Braeburn Farm, and uh, have kept that partnership going. So cool. Uh, we'll definitely come back to that as far as you know why there was that need um but uh charles you have uh, a pretty interesting background um can you tell us a little bit more about where you came from and, and what you're doing now sure i was um actually raised in richmond virginia although during the second world war uh, we lived on my aunt's ranch in montana and when i finished high school I went back to the ranch, um, and that was my introduction to um, to beef cattle. Uh, it was a beef cattle ranch up on the Montana-Idaho border. Um, I uh, got a fairly broad liberal arts education in undergraduate school, went to uh, University of Virginia Medical School, um, internship at WashU in uh, St. Louis. Um, uh, my original field, uh, I was in an MD-PhD program at uh, UVA, and my original field was neuroembryology. I was going to be a pediatric neurosurgeon, which is the world's most depressing field. And um, uh, I, had, I ended up with a choice of going to Duke or going to Vietnam, so I went to Duke and um, uh, in the I program and uh, did uh, residency at Duke uh, and then a fellowship in neuro-ophthalmology at um, Michigan, came back to Duke for 10 years and left academia primarily because it was too confining. Uh, I have, uh, it, is, it is both a cursing and a blessed to have a lot of interests. Uh, it keeps you young, uh, but 
um, probably uh, in an academic world, having a having a, ra- a laser like focus uh, is much better in terms of publishing and that sort of thing. And I just decided to leave academia because I wanted to do a lot of other things, and uh, so I did. Uh, went into private practice, um, retired uh, last year. Uh, but um, uh, UNC had a need for uh, what I do, and I'm uh, teaching and uh, seeing patients two days a week to help them uh, f- uh, find uh, some people to do what I do. Um, uh, the The medical background is is what led me to um, uh, an interest in nutrition. It was in the mid-90s that... Uh, I read the really scientific uh, publications of Lauren Cordain, which many of you will know, and uh, uh, which had to do with fat profiles in meat, both uh, elk and, and venison and, and cattle, and they, they looked at cows coming out of a feedlot, and the fat profile was quite different, and it just caught my attention. Um, this was kind of the part of the beginning of the kind of modern paleo movement. This is so. uh, this is the beginning of the paleo movement because Lauren Gordain, uh, and I, I'm sure there are others, but uh, he was kind of the, the main uh, uh, person, at least the main person that I knew about. Uh, and he was publishing in some really good peer-reviewed journals and so on. So the information was really good. And I realized then that fat was not the problem. Um, and yet, uh, we were 30 years into the, uh, into the uh, Ansel Keys type of get the fat out of your diet and everything in the, in the mid to late 90s was get the fat out and oh my God, milk is bad and meat is bad and everything is bad if it has fat in it. And, and it, it, it never, it just didn't make sense from a systems point of view. It didn't make sense. And that's, that's where I got. Uh, interested in the grass-fed beef, and and uh, <clears throat> uh, and it was uh, it was Lauren Cordain's work really that just showed me on uh, and and we've done some of our own um, analyses to look at the meat and see what the fat profile looks like, uh, and it's uh, it's pretty cool. How yeah. is it? How has this gained steam now? I mean, look, I mean, we're it's 2017, and we're finally looking at a more popularized movement towards grass-fed meats and quality of food what's uh what's brought us to that point from the early 90s well um i i actually made the change in uh 2001 9-11 i um i have i was in the stalker business meaning i would bring in uh, animals from the from the auction market i would clean them up and uh uh, and put them out on pastures, and um, uh, on uh, on the week of 9/11, I had five loads of stocker cattle to go out of Virginia, and the price of on 9/11 price of stocker cattle dropped 10 cents a pound. Well, uh, 250,000 pounds of beef times a dime adds up to real money, and uh, I came home, uh, uh, and uh, after having, I had to sell them because there was no grass for them anymore, and. Uh, uh, I remember sitting down by the creek on my place and just looking at the 
at the big picture, just looking at the system and realizing the whole thing was broken, that just about everything I was doing was not in the cow's best interest nor my best interest, uh, um, certainly not in my children's best interest, and I just made the choice to change everything. And one of those changes was to go to grass-fed beef, and um, but I had the wrong cow. I, I, my farm wasn't set up to, to do what I wanted to do. And so over the years, there's been a, a, a long list of, of, of pieces that go into this. And the more, the more it comes together, uh, the more aware you are that, that uh, we, um, uh, as a farmer, you really just manage chaos because it is a chaotic system. No single day is like any other day that ever was. And that impinges on the cows or what they eat, uh, the, the whole system. And you, you begin to realize it's not just, it's not just the cow, but it's everything around the cow. Uh, a good example, I, I went into a pasture. Um, I had a couple of people, a guy from Syngenta, if you can believe this, uh, came and, and they, he brought his dad and he wanted to look at all this. And we went in and we moved the cows. We moved them every day so they got fresh ground to go into. And when they went into this pasture, the, 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 the air was just full of all the insects coming out of the, uh, the pasture. And birds everywhere because boy the cows had stirred up their lunch and uh, it's it's just an amazing thing to see how the system really works um, and you don't you don't really think I mean how would a bird have anything to do with a cow well it turns out they have a lot to do with, with a cow probably in the sense that um, every time they eat the insects what do they do with the remains of the insect they put it back on the earth. So all of a sudden, with an increased bird population, you're you're increasing the fertilization of your pastures. I mean, just simple little things like this that we, I just in in the past as a cowman, in a traditional uh, sense, I would have looked at uh, just the pasture. How many pounds of beef am I going to get off of it, and so on. I didn't really think about the quality of the animal, the um, the the um, the well-being of the animal has a great deal to do with the quality of the meat you're going to get. Um, is this? Um, do these animals live in a herd, which is their instinct? Are they calm and quiet? Do they, you know, all these things? You can you can raise the best beef in the world and ruin it on the last day by having an animal that's frantic. Which I grew up on a ranch in Texas, so like I'm familiar with the process of stalker cows and so on and so forth. And mm-hmm. like it's funny to me as we've moved forward and we're talking about like, hey, cows frantic and literally ruin the meat, right? I think that we as a population, uh, me particularly, like being raised around the idea that meat is just chattel, like it's you know, hey, we've got we raise these cows, we kill them, we chop them up. And is it USDA approved as prime or choice or whatever else? Like food is food to the average consumer. And I think we're starting to see that that's not the case, Mm -hmm. um, that food quality. But I don't think that everyone, like certainly not everyone who's listening will understand that. Could you kind of quickly outline for the listeners uh, what 
they're getting out of grass-fed quality beef that they're not getting out of a USDA choice steak at the grocery store? Sure. Um, uh, an animal uh, from my place was born there, raised there, uh, stayed with um, uh, with its uh, mates uh, the entire time. Um, they are certainly worked through a chute, but there's no yelling, no screaming. Um, everything is quiet. We move them through quickly, as quickly as we can. Um, we do uh, vaccinate because um, I have neighbors with cows. Um, uh, however, uh, we quit worming uh, because we don't need to. If you move cows every day, they don't need to be wormed. Uh, do we need to use antibiotics? Not at all. Uh, these animals are perfectly healthy. Antibiotics um, allow you to heal yourself. They don't, in, in, in any inherent sense, heal you. Um, and so we just eliminated all of that. Um, and we, uh, uh, we started uh, looking at what does a cow eat? Um, is there, um, if you go to a feedlot in Kansas, uh, they will say we feed a totally mixed ration. Every ounce of everything in there is calculated to the milligram. And, and they will get three and a half, even four pounds a day gain. On my grass, I may get two pounds a day gain. Uh, but the animal is, uh, is, in, is in a really terrific environment. A tremendous diversity of, of things to eat. What does that have to do with the quality of the meat? I have no idea. But I can tell you that it probably has a good deal to do with, with the quality of the meat. We know, for instance, that the omega-6 to 3 ratio in grass-fed beef is greatly different than it is in, in uh, feedlot beef. Um, so uh, it, it is the, it's the total experience of the animal throughout a lifetime uh, that creates a really good carcass. And, and I, I will come back, and I, when people come and tour the farm, one of the things I always tell them is, do not get hung up on breed. I happened to raise Red Devon cattle because uh, a group of us uh, back in uh, 2002 uh, found a fabulous Red Devon bull in New Zealand and ultimately brought some heifers to this country. Uh, we uh, put them out on five or six farms, uh, and the Red Devon has become a, fa a fairly popular breed amongst um, grass-fed beef people. But uh, are there good Angus and good Herefords and good Shorthorns? Absolutely, uh, there are. Uh, and so uh, I, I come back, I, I think it is the totality of the experience uh, that the animal goes through that creates the quality of the meat. Now, that having been said, one of the biggest problems that we have in the grass-fed beef business is that people are not selling finished beef. They're selling heavy feeders. And, and I would like Ross to speak to this a little bit because uh, it it. Um, you, the animal has to be finished. The animal has to have some intermuscular fat in order to give uh, people a good eating experience. That is, the meat is juicy and it's flavorful. Uh, and there's a whole list of these things that make a difference. The uh, animals coming out of a feedlot, 18 months of age, maybe, um, uh, they, they feed them to the max because time is money. 
um, and it's it's all about the money. Uh, on the animals on my place, uh, some of these animals are 36 months old before they finish. That is a problem in terms of how it's slaughtered and so on. But uh, it means that the animal is old enough to have flavor, is old enough to have gained enough weight to make a good eating experience, um, and then just the totality of the uh, the experience of that animal lend uh, leads to the quality. Before uh, we, we hear Ross chime in, um, can you speak a little bit more about the omega six omega three ratio? Why that's different on grass versus grain fed cattle? Yeah, and um, you know why why age matters and and why it matters inversely to what we kind of have been led to think about like younger cows being better? Sure. Um, if we, we go back, and uh, I remember my uncle uh, who ran the ranch in Montana, a wonderful stockman, and uh, my mentor, and he went, uh, when Swift and Company was a big uh, player in the meat market, he went with a group of ranchers and met with all the folks at Swift and Company, and they said, number one, uh, when when we go to the grocery store and we interview the housewife coming in to buy a roast, number one, tenderness. Uh, tenderness is both a, a breeding trait, so it's a genetic trait, but it also relates to, uh, to age. So younger animals are more tender than older animals. That's why you don't get many good ribeye steaks out of a 10-year-old cow. Um, but... Um, the, um, the when you take an animal, uh, let's say a 700-pound steer, and you send it to the feedlot, the first thing they're going to—they know this uh, as well as we do—carbohydrates make us fat. That's we all know that. <clears throat> carbohydrates make a cow fat. What has high carbohydrates? Corn. Corn is high in omega-6 uh, fatty acids. These animals, if if they have, if you were to test their omega six to three ratio at seven hundred pounds coming off grass, it would be quite good. Um, but the more you feed them a concentrated diet, the the the, the higher that ratio goes because the omega sixes increase from the day they go in the feedlot until they finish. So if the animal went in at seven hundred pounds and you're going to put 600 pounds on the animal at 4 pounds a day, that's going to be 150 days, and that entire time that ratio is going up. And um, uh, and so if we look at um, what uh, uh, dietetic people tell me is that a ratio of 1 to 1 would be ideal. Well, with um, cows coming out of a feedlot, it's not uncommon to have 10 omega-6s, 1 omega-3 in that meat. You're basically making the meat way less healthy. Making it less healthy. Now, make no doubt, omega-6s are as essential as omega-3s. Don't don't get... All of this is always relative. Sure. And... and, uh, uh, but we would like to have a nice ratio of omega sixes to omega threes, and the and a good grass fed cow will have about one point two to one. Uh, that was the numbers um, that we 
got when when we sent this uh, uh, down to Susan Duckett at uh, Clemson, and we looked at our beef, and it was 1.2 omega sixes to one omega three, and that's that's about what we would like. That's a that's a nice ratio. Uh, it's just it's just the um, when it comes to diet, it's all things in moderation. Um, uh, and um, uh, eating high-quality food and not too much of it uh, is the key. And, of course, uh, uh, all of you are aware of the, of the concepts of nutrient-dense food, local food, and that sort of thing. Um, I, I would actually say I, I bet there's a lot of people listening to this that may be not as familiar of uh, about the concepts you just mentioned. So. <clears throat> almost, almost guarantee that. <laughs> right. I definitely want to want to touch on that more. Okay. Um, but another, th- I, man, there's so many things I want to I want to talk about. If we can just back up a little bit, okay. Um, you know, you have this realization that you need to change how your how your farm set up, mm-hmm. everything that you're doing, right? Right. Um, and obviously, at that point, you know a lot about farming. Uh, I mean, you know, you grew up with your uncle as your mentor. Uh, you, you've been, you know, working a farm on your property for a long period of time. Um, but as you talk about, you know, realizing the importance of the birds and seeing, you know, the insects fly up, I'm guessing that that, that was not a specific goal at the time, um, you know, when, you, when you're sitting after September 11th, you know, looking over the, the creek on your property, um, you know, that vision wasn't in your mind. So, you know, what were the, what were the steps that you knew you had to start taking? And then, you know, what did you have to do from a learning perspective, you know, to kind of figure out, hey, this isn't working, but, you know, how do I move to this, this ideal that I want to get to? Um, you know, what did you do to, to educate yourself or re-educate yourself? Um, and what were the steps you had to do to change your land? Well, the, the first thing I looked at was uh, that the water um, on my place was filthy. Um, uh, number one requirement for every animal on earth is clean water. That's number one. You can go two days without water and 60 days without food before you get into trouble. And um, so in sitting by the creek on uh, it wasn't 9-11 by then, it was 9-15, uh, looking at the, um, at the water coming down the creek and looking at the banks of the creek and realizing that I'm part of the problem because the water that's coming through my place is, ends up being filthy coming out. Uh, that's, that's, not good for, that's not good for society. It's not good for my cows. So the first thing we did was we put the creek in a conservation easement and what that meant was the the creek was completely restored um, and was fenced out 50 feet on either side so that cows didn't stand in the creek, um, uh, defecating and urinating in the creek. Uh, and we put a 50-foot buffer so that all material going into that creek was buffered. And it turns out that today, 14 years later, after the end of that um, uh, uh, project, uh, the water coming out of my place is cleaner than the water that comes in. From the conservation easement, I had some money, and I drilled three wells, pulled about uh, 25,000 feet of underground pipe, put in about 30 watering stations, and that allowed me 
to graze cattle in a proper way. And what I mean by that is you, uh, if, if water is your number one thing, you've got to have good, clean water all the time. And so we put those waters in, uh, and that allowed us to have well water for our cows. The water they're drinking is every bit as good as the water you're drinking. And uh, <clears throat> uh, that... Uh, meant that I could break the farm. It's it's divided into about uh, 34 pastures of about 15 acres each. And and uh, what that means is, is that we can take a lot of cows, we can put them on a small area for a short time, and then give that land a long rest period. Um, and, uh, and that leads into uh, something else, and that is, is that all agriculture is determined by the quality of the soil within which things are grown. And that applies every bit as much to a cow as it does to a, a, a Brussels sprout. Yeah, we've heard Joel Salton say that he's, he's really a, a grass farmer more than everything, anything else, right? Yeah, well, actually, he's not a grass farmer. He's a dirt farmer. <laughs> uh, and that means that, and, and, and Joel is just great. I've, I've spent a bit of time with him. And, uh, uh, and uh, yes, in other words, we're all um, uh, uh, stewards of the soil. And from good soil comes good food, healthy animals, a, a, a decent ecosystem. The whole thing is a system. It's not just... Um, uh, the the parts and and therein lies the problem as a as a farmer prior to 2001 uh, I was always looking at the pieces and uh, one of the great things about reductionist science and that's that's how science is done to a very real extent we take a, a specific uh, variable we try to control for all the other variables and we then change things with regard to that variable and see what happens and so as we go further and further down to the molecular level uh, as one person put it we're looking we're looking at um, we're learning more and more about less and less until we know everything about nothing and what it means is we are failing to put that back in the context of the whole. And that was my problem with farming. I was looking at the cow instead of looking at the system. So I was buying fertilizer, buying feed, buying medicine, all these things to, to try and get a, a cow healthy. But in point of fact, what I really needed to do was give the cow an environment in which they could stay healthy. So what was what were the steps that you took, you know, to kind of wean off the fertilizer, okay, you know, well, herbicides, pesticides? Yeah. Um, the, um, uh, the first thing I started noticing is, is that when you start grazing properly and giving the land time to recover, um, that all kinds of grasses came in. Just to be clear, when you say that, that is what you're referring to isn't just having one giant area where the cows go out every day and continually eat grass. You're talking about, you know, moving them to smaller patches of grass. That, yes. Let me let me give you an example. If I take one cow and I put her on ten acres of pasture, she will overgraze it. You'd say, well, how could that be? It only takes three acres to run a cow in this environment. In Montana, it's thirty to forty. So I mean, just different places, different uh, systems. 
Uh, but if you take that cow and you put her in a pasture, she will walk around the pasture. She will eat everything she likes and she'll eat nothing that she doesn't like. And as soon as what she likes grows back a few millimeters, she eats it again and again until it's destroyed. And I use the analogy, let's take the third grade uh, at the local elementary school. We're going to take them over to Food Line. We're going to open the door, shove all the kids in, lock it up, come back in the morning. What's gone? All the candy, all the chocolates, and the Brussels sprouts (laughs) will be uneaten. Okay, well, the cow's the same way. So she goes around and she eats everything she wants until she destroys it. And in essence, she she is selecting for what she doesn't want. All right. So what we need to do is we need to manage for what we want, not for what we don't want. Okay. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a lot of cows and we're going to put them on a very small area. So let's say this morning, for instance, we moved 120 cows. They're dry. They're getting ready to calve in September. Uh, We took 120 cows and we put them on two acres. Now, what's going to happen? One cow's going to look at the other and say, I'm going, to, I'm going to eat that because if I don't eat it, you're going to eat it. And what they're going to do is they're going to eat everything. <laughs> okay? But I'm not going to leave them in there until they gnaw it down to the ground. I want them to snip the top off, but I want them to eat a broad array of things, and then I want to get out of there. So we're only going to leave them on that for one day. And then we're going to move them, and we're not going to come back to this particular ground that we're grazing right now. We won't come back to that until January. Wow. And and what that's going to do is that it's going to allow that land, uh, that that the roots of the soil to, to go down, the, the liquid carbon pathway is going to feed the roots that's going to ooze out into the soil. It's going to feed the bacteria, protozoa, uh, funguses. And we're working hard to increase our fun- uh, bacterial to fungal ratio. We're trying, well, actually, it's the fungal to bacterial ratio. We're trying to uh, increase that so we get more fungi in the soil. What happens with a, with a system like this is the roots keep going deeper and deeper. And as you uh, enhance soil health, the quality of the grass you're getting uh, is enhanced. Uh, and you don't need to put fertilizer on it. I just I haven't put fertilizer on um, any of my pasture in 10 years. Um, and we don't bush hog it. And people would say, well, you don't. You know, clip it. What happens to that weed over there? Look at that thistle, that nasty thing. Don't you want to get rid of that? Again, manage for what you want, not for what you don't want. And so firing up the tractor, putting the bush hog behind it, and blowing black smoke in the air isn't doing anybody any good. It's not really doing the pasture that much good because really healthy ecosystems have a huge variety of, of of uh, things. I mean, I look at the bachelor buttons that are growing in my pasture. They're beautiful. I have no idea why they're there, uh, but they're part of the system. Uh, and I'm perfectly happy to say, I don't know. Well, Just leave it alone. I'll tell you, growing up on 1,200 acres and running cows on it and getting like four cuts of hay a season, I'm like, this is so crazy. <laughs> yeah. and, and I'm also like, yeah. this is awesome because I'll tell you like, 
I thought I was a meat connoisseur until I met Ross and I saw the meat that was coming out of the butcher shop and I've never seen meat until I went to the left bank butchery and, and people started like Aaron started to talk to me about the quality of food and listening to you talk. I can just sit here and listen all day. Cause I'm thinking about all of our future listeners brains exploding when they hear about liquid carbon pathways. And <laughs> I'm like, no one, dude, the Google is going to get completely overwhelmed based on this <laughs> podcast. What is he talking about? <laughs> I mean, it sounds like your background in the medical profession is giving you, you know, an advantage of, of, you know, helping you understand, you know, biology and, and ecosystems on the farm and, you know, work towards, uh, you know, better pasture management. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> you know, what are the resources out there for people like yourself that want to switch from more industrial farming to, you know, more of kind of a local sustainable model? Sure. Uh, look around the country and you will find um, um, a, a, lo- a very large number of people who are doing this in, in the state of North Carolina, for instance. Uh, the Carolina Farm Stewardship Association uh, in Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania Sustainable Agriculture, PASA, it's called. I mean, uh, there uh, and in every state, every state, there are these folks who uh, are, are learning about uh, soil health and and uh, um, and. Many many people today would tell you that you can't, you cannot farm without animals, and I know my vegetarian friends will will dispute it. But it, show me any ecosystem a thousand years ago that didn't have animals on it. I think vegetarianism is an interesting topic of conversation in itself. I mean, I understand like when I when I married my wife, she was a vegetarian, mm-hmm. and uh, I cook, and she doesn't much. And so she quit being a vegetarian very rapidly because I like meat. But I feel like listening to vegetarians talk, especially based on industrial ranching and animal raising techniques, like, I mean, there's, I don't suffer from their sensibilities, but I understand why they have objections to meat in a modern era based on the way it's raised. So when you talk to like you or, um, was the ladies, the, the, Eliza? Yeah, Eliza, um, the pig farmer from the mm-hmm. um, butcher shop. I, there's a – it's a completely different environment for the, for the animal. It's a completely different environment as far as an outcome goes, uh, and, and their life is an actual life. I mean, I feel like a lot of people that eat meat don't care, <laughs> but I get why vegetarians do. So I think that as we move to the sustainable, humane – sort of ranching and farming a lot of vegetarians will be able to re-examine their food choices and and make a different decision i love finding vegetarians because most vegetarians are young women and the reason they are vegetarians is because they don't like the way animals are treated and and i certainly agree with that from any sort of um uh, of uh, long-term perspective um uh, man didn't get here eating a salad, I'm sorry. Uh, and if we look at uh, uh, the ethnographic atlas, uh, we'll find that hunter-gatherer groups got about 65% of their calories from meat uh, over over time. So I think 
uh, I love vegetarians because former vegetarians are some of my best customers. <laughs> People that really think about food, right? That what what happens is they begin to look at food and put it in the proper perspective, and then f- they don't lose their sensibility of how the animals treated at all. They just find that there are places where they can go to find. Uh, meat that is that is appropriate in the context of the overall system, and when once they find that, um, a, a number of them, uh, per, particularly uh, young women who are pregnant, uh, find that uh, their nutritional requirements. Uh, remember one young girl who just had a passion for pot roast. She ate <laughs> pot roast by the by the pound, and and. Uh, uh, but the pot roast has got to come from the right place. Right. Yeah, well, and I know <clears throat> from uh, from an ecological or environmental standpoint as well, one of the things that I've heard Ross mention before is that, you know, if you can make the argument successfully, and I would challenge that you could, that you can that you can get all of the, the right, you know, nutrients from a vegetarian diet or the quality of those mm-hmm. nutrients – you know, one of the reasons, like you said, that most people are looking at a vegetarian diet is because of a, an ideologic reason, you know, about animal welfare. Um, and I think that, you know, the, the real issue is, is Ross really likes to point out, and I want to hear him talk about this more, um, is that when you look at that second derivative effect, um, you know, the same way that you're talking about how important the soil and the grass is for the beef, um, you know, what does it take to raise, you know, these giant fields of vegetables or these giant fields of, you know, all the all the food, you know, mostly corn and soybeans that are going into, you know, vegetarian hamburgers and, and that kind of stuff. Uh, and, you know, the reality is that the fertilizer, right, like keeping those fields productive is going to require something that probably comes from really an industrial livestock operation. You know, like, where does all the poop from, a, you know, a Smithfield chicken house go? You're well, only fueling the fire of vegans right now. Well, I can't eat those vegetables. No. They're fertilizing <laughs> cow poop. That's my point, though, is that it, is that really, it, it's not as righteous as it seems, right? Because you are in a second order, basically supporting the industry that you, you, you know, so vehemently despise. That, um, that is correct. That uh, and that's why I come back. Uh, good farming is never done in the absence of animals. So have you guys? I mean, you guys are you guys read the berry Wendell Berry stuff? My favorite author. Yeah. I mean, so like I, that's actually my wife is a, is a sociology professor, mm-hmm. and so for years while we were like engaged and knew each other, she would always mention Barry and I'm like, I'm not going to read that hippie. And then at some point I picked up a Wendell Berry book and I started to read it. And like his love affair with tobacco, even though he objects to tobacco as a usable item is amazing to me to see this, like, you know, the care and community and just a general sense of, of well being that goes into the raising of tobacco I see this in like in you and honestly I see it in Ross when we talk about the quality of meat when Ross lights up when he's like, Oh yeah, this cut. I'm like, I have no idea what that cut is. And Ross has been really quiet right now. But I know that like he appreciates the quality of animal that comes from your farms and I've never seen meat 
like the meat that comes off of your local farms. And I feel like, you know, when I really weigh the cost of what I'm paying for meat at the PX or the grocery store or Walmart or whatever, like it's not dramatically more expensive for me to shop for quality meat from Ross. And yet the experience that I have and the experience I'm contributing to is a much more local, sustainable thing. Like I see people come into the butcher shop and like they know Ross. They have a relationship with their butcher. Their butcher knows what they like. You know, like I mean, Ross gave me steaks the other week or I got steaks from Ross the other week that Ross was like, I don't care for the marbling. These these steaks were poorly cut. I'm like, these are the best looking steaks I've ever seen in my life. Ross is like, I don't know. I didn't like the the grain of the meat. And I was like, what does that even mean? Like these were, but then I cooked them and I realized they were not as good as the bone and ribeyes he had given me like two months earlier. And I was like, that my kids fought over, you know, like, I mean, my kids don't even love me. And my six year old, my 15 year old were literally about to murder each other for the last bite of the bone and ribeyes. So, well, yeah. So Ross, one of the things you mentioned in, in your introduction, uh, you know, was that there was a literally a need for the butcher shop. Um, and when you say that, I don't think you were talking about it from the consumer aspect. I think you were talking about it from the farm aspect, right? Right. So what did you mean by that? Well, so I work for Charles and, and um, the other side of the farm was Cane Creek uh, where we raised pigs. Uh, but it, at that time it was all one farm. And, um, you know, I got into butchery because of my concern for agriculture. I mean, I've always loved cooking, um, but, you know, most butcher shops don't start um, from, you know, the sort of farming and agricultural side of it. When when you came to the farm, you know, had you spent time on farms before, you know, or... (laughs) <laughs> were you were you already thinking about? I'm looking Doc at Charles is, over there. Doc is shaking his head. I, I feel like there were uh, there were a lot of mistakes made. Nah, <laughs> I learned quickly. <laughs> what do you always say? I didn't know the ass end from the. He's front a fat. End. He's a yeah. I didn't know the ass end from the front end of a cow. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he was a quick learner. That's good. Yeah. So, you, you know, when when you come into the butcher shop, I mean, there's we're out in the middle of nowhere. We don't think we're very cool. We don't have meat cleavers everywhere. I'm yet to get my first tattoo. Um, when you were making the logo for the butcher shop, I feel like this entire like, like <laughs> intro to the butcher shop is an implication about me. <laughs> I am well, the opposite. When we were making the logo for the butcher shop, Ross was adamant there will be no knives in the logo. You know, there will be no cleavers, no pig heads, no like really. Um, this isn't Brooklyn. We don't, we don't think we're super, we're super Ross hip. Ross is a real killjoy. <laughs> Ross what? does ride a bike to work though. Is it what? a fixie? It's, it's an old. <laughs> no, it's got gears and everything. Nice. <laughs> it, but it is an old 10 speed. So I feel like we're, we're right on the cusp there. Um, and yeah, when you come in, there's, um, uh, big watercolor paintings of the farms that we buy from. And, uh, obviously, you know, we make lots of charcuterie and it's not, it's not hard to get excited about good food. I mean, that's pretty universal. People enjoy food. <laughs> um, people don't even know they enjoy food until they get good food. And then they're like, wow, yeah, I get it now. But there, there is a need for someone to commit to buying the entire animal. So when I did work for Charles, We'd get phone calls from from chefs, and they would say, "Okay, I need a case." That's a very restaurant term, right there. I need a case of tenderloins, you know. 
I need 80 pounds of tenderloin. How many cows does it take to get a case of tenderloins? So if you figure one of the carcass, just the carcass weight of a cow that Charles brings me would be about 700 pounds on maybe a 12 to 1300 pound animal, 700 pound carcass. Um, That's with bone? Yeah. Yeah. So I get seven pounds of filet mignon. So 1% 1 of that cow. So You're basically talking about 11 cows. I'm like, I'm not worried about selling that 1%. Um, And it it doesn't really help for a restaurant to call you and say, I need 80 pounds of tenderloin because we looked over the field and saw, you know, 10 animals out there and said, all right, there's your 80, you know, but what am I going to do with the other 99% of those 10 cows? So, you know, we're a whole animal butcher shop, which um, is, you know, unlike 99.9% of other butcher shops, um, which are really more meat markets. Um, What they do is they buy cases of big primals, sirloins you cut it into steaks it's boneless you cut it into steaks it's not coming from a farm right i mean it's coming from well ultimately yes but it's coming from you know u.s foods or some kind of more like industrial supplier right typically yeah (laughs) yes um and then you run out of it and you order more of it um so we do it the much more difficult way which is we buy a whole animal um like i said the filet mignon sells itself. <coughs> then I got to figure out what to do with the other 99% of the cow, um, but which, that's, which is I, fun. That's what I love about coming to your butcher shop is that when you look, I mean, I've never seen the same meats in the case. And, you know, Aaron, who's there all the time, will ask you, you know, it's like, it's like going to deal with um, the um, – the sommelier you're like a meat sommelier like <laughs> a you, meat sommelier <laughs> you have a story for I, I, every I, cut that's and, going on a business see, card right <laughs> I, was gonna say, I see like a t-shirt in the future yeah <laughs> but it's funny because like aaron's like what is this like he'll just point at something and ross will be like oh it's this thing and you know we did this to it and i'm like that's awesome because it makes people want to buy stuff that i mean would get thrown away right at another yeah i I mean, just this week, Brooke came out, and we had a, f- a free cooking class at the butcher shop. Um, and the reason we do that, it's it's more about the science of cooking meat. I'm not there to, like, really entertain anybody. But I am there to, to help people work their way through the meat case. Um, and what we try and do is simplify. We may have 30 different cuts on a cow that we sell at any moment. Um but we simplify the science. Okay, let's let's put this into three major categories. You can cook every single cut on an animal, any animal, with three different cooking techniques. So let's figure out what makes for good roasting, what makes for good fast cooking, what makes for good braising. Outside of that, every other form of cooking is some deviation of that. Okay, uh, there's nothing. You know, when you're smoking, you're roasting. You're just adding smoke to it. Okay, so once you once you simplify it, I mean, I, every time we do these free cooking classes, I look at everybody and it's like this weight came off their shoulders. And they're like, oh, geez. You know, yeah. I always have people, well, how, how do you cook the Denver steak? Well, how would you cook the culotte steak? How would you cook the ribeye? I, I'd cook them all the same. You know, I mean, there's there's differences. You just see the look this of thing. contempt in Ross's face when he said that. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> things only video can convey. But they're like, you know, they, they want to know that how would I cook this steak from that steak? Well, if they're the same thickness, 
you're going to do the same thing with them. Now, there's there's differences to those stakes. I can tell the differences about them, but the fundamental approach from a cooking standpoint is not different. Um, so anyway, back to you know our relationship with the farm. You know, people, why do we do it that way? Why do I buy you know a twenty five hundred dollar cow and then figure out how to make money on it? Um, like I said, it's not the easy way to do it, and of course, I upset people because we're out of filet mignon or whatever. Um, and I, I always ask this in like school groups, and they're always like, "Cause you want to use the whole animal," and that is true. This animal spent thirty six months on this earth. It was raised well. We're going to use every part of it. That's the bone, the fats, everything. We're going to find a purpose for it. Okay, so that's that's kind of the obvious one. But the second reason that we buy whole animals is because we want to buy from Brayburn. We want to buy from Cane Creek. And if I just order filet mignons, I don't know where those are coming from because they all get thrown into a box because I needed 80 pounds of filet mignon. And before the butcher shop, I mean, it was really the farmer's market model, right? So every week yeah. you're packing up meat, trying to figure out, you know, what do I need to bring this week to the farmer's market? What are people going to want to buy? And then everything that you take that you don't sell goes back to either the cooler or the freezer. So and we would we wind a lot up of time with spent marketing. I mean, like you could be farming. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's a really inefficient model. Um, <laughs> well, and not only that, but I mean, probably more detail than anybody wants to know. But you raise this animal thirty six months, and then you go to a processor, and you have to pay money. To get your meat back to you and package product, which is fair. Yeah. They're doing a job. So then you, you spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars after having raised this animal and its mom, you know, and then you have to pay just to get your meat back. You say you, you're talking about the farm. The farm, yeah. And then we would take this meat, we'd go to a farmer's market, it might rain, who knows, and then you, you wind up driving back with 80% of it. And, of course, the filet mignon sell. But, <laughs> you know, then you go unload a bunch of ground beef, a bunch of beef shanks, and you keep doing this week in and week out, and uh, and you're spending your time doing that. I mean, you know, we would actually want to be on the farm, and instead we were sitting there on our hands hoping that somebody was going to show up at the farmer's market and ask us to buy beef shanks. And that didn't happen. Well, you don't have a relationship with the people at the farmer's market. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you don't have a relationship with the people at the farmer's market either. So, like, the way that I see people come into the butcher shop and, like, consult, you know, their sommelier. <laughs> uh, like, people trust your judgment. But when you're the guy peddling meat out of the back of a cooling trailer at a farmer's market, people see meat that they don't know and they're not going to buy it. Well, I mean, you do have a relationship in that they know their farmer and they trust the source of it. What you don't have control over is the products that are made and how it was cut, right? So back in the day, there used to be an abattoir and a butcher. We've asked that job to be done by the same entity now, a processor. And while they do an okay, they do a good job with the, the slaughter of it, you know, they don't do a very good job of the cutting. I'll just be honest. I know that's a huge generalization. There's a lot of good processors out there. But they're being forced to cut a lot of animals, and everybody wants to know how much it's going to cost processing, and they, they have to move fast. And all their animals are coming at them differently, and um, they don't, you know, they don't do what we do in a butcher shop, which is to be expected. 
Um, so then you'd go to the farmer's market and, you know, incorrectly cut meats. Um, so anyway, now the system's completely different. I mean, when, when Charles drops off, he takes it to the slaughterhouse, the slaughterhouse drops off, it brings it and delivers us an entire animal. And I write a check to Charles, no, no processing costs, no nothing. I write a check to him and he goes back to farming. I write a check to Cane Creek for all the pigs. She goes back to farming. I mean, when Eliza wants, who raises our pigs, when she wants to eat a pork chop, she has to come to the butcher shop. I mean, she doesn't like, she doesn't have any pork at her place. I just want to say that I, that's a, I'm a firm believer in pork now, thanks to you. Like those Cane Creek pigs are absolutely, I used to say, oh, well, steak's everything. Come from Texas, steak is everything. Those pigs are better than steak. Well, most of the pork you're getting from the grocery store is so devoid of any flavor that it's it's just not enjoyable. No, I get why people right? don't like pork. It's a briquette of white meat that's tasteless, odorless, and generally the unappealing. other white meat that shouldn't <laughs> be white, right? Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, the stuff that's coming from yours, I, I know um, when I was in Ohio with Aaron, like before I came to work for Softly, we had a big Softly get together, like a seminar. And um, we showed up and Aaron brought a cooler full of meat from the butcher shop. And um, at, at a certain point, he asked me if I was hungry one night. And I was like, yeah, man, whatever you're going to get. And he pulls out um, what I thought was a steak because it was very red. And it was in a cooler. And I thought... He was going to actually cook it, and he wrapped it in a, um, a paper towel and stuck it in the microwave. Oh, Jesus, and, don't tell me this. And I, <laughs> <laughs> Only for like 30 seconds. Yeah, he just he just warmed it up for me, right? And the thing is, I'm sitting there like – This is an already cooked piece of meat. We should probably yeah, – Yes. Out. No, no. That's the thing is in my mind, I was about to throw up. I was like, what is he doing? This is the most disgusting thing ever. And Aaron, like, looks at me like I'm just this Philistine. You know, I'm like, no, dude, you're the one that's fucked up, right? <laughs> and he hands it to me. He goes, uh, enjoy this. You're going to like it. And I was like, you know, I've, I've worked in Africa and the Middle East. And, like, I've eaten rotten elephant tripe and whatever. I'm not going to turn down food from anybody. I will eat anything anybody puts in front of me. But I was prepared for it to be the most disgusting thing <laughs> that any dude has ever given me. And he gave me a gently warmed up smoked pork chop. <laughs> That was like butter and bacon in a two-inch thick slab of just – I mean, it was like a bacon-flavored steak with the perfect amount of fat. I've never eaten anything so good. There's pictures of me looking like a total goofball with like this big smile on my face in my ranger panties with my legs crossed eating this grill – this pork chop and i was like what is this this is a this is amazing like i couldn't even eat the whole thing it was so rich and delicious i've never been in a place where i was like oh yeah i'm gonna leave a little meat on the plate i think i had to give it to george or something you know because i just can't eat anymore this is too much but uh it was amazing i and um then Aaron gave me the whole spiel about your pork's not supposed to be white it's you know it's because it's shitty pork and i was like oh well okay and yeah man that was the the first step down the path right (laughs) so um yeah i mean i guess that is i think you know one of the things that you that you've talked about ross before in the shop is that when people come in you know they look at the case you see their eyes glaze over you know and and you've cut you know the the cow you know mostly with beef i feel like more than pork because the cows are bigger animals um you know you've cut apart the cow into different cuts 
and lots of different stakes. And 90% of the stuff in the case people haven't seen before or they don't know what it is. Um, you know, when people are coming into the shop for the first time and, you know, they kind of, they know they want to try something from the butcher shop. They know maybe they're there for whatever reason, either it's because they believe that the meat tastes better or they want to try and support a system that they feel like is, is better ideologically, uh, whether, for, you know, for the animals or the environment or both, you know, what do you do to kind of help people so that they don't walk in and just get totally overwhelmed, um, you know, and, and walk right back out? You know, how, how do you bridge that gap? Um, and part of this is then, you know, having a conversation about you know, essentially like budget and price, right? Um, you know, so we go to the grocery store and we're used to seeing maybe like four or five different cuts, you know, ribeyes, New York strip steaks, fillets, uh, ground beef, and maybe like stew meat or something like that, you know? Um, and I think at the shop, you probably have a hundred different cuts of beef that, that are, that are possible. Um, so how do people learn about that, you know, learn what to do with it and, and what are the things that people can do when they walk in, if they look at, you know, the higher end and stakes. And, and this is a conversation you and I have had, you know, multiple times. It's like, no matter how expensive the filet gets, like that always sells out, right? You know, 31 bucks a pound you know, whatever, it doesn't matter, you know, three days in the... has like a knowing smile on his no, face. No, it's $27, but I, but I could, I could keep raising it all day <laughs> right. long. So, well, same thing with, with ribeyes, right? And yeah. I mean, we've argued about whether the ribeyes should be more expensive or not. And, you know, Ross is always like, you're not the guy that has to look at someone in the face when they walk in and just give you the sneer after looking <laughs> at the price of beef. Um, but from, from a market perspective, it's like, man, if, if you keep selling out of this stuff and everything else is left, like, you know, maybe that should be more expensive. However, um, you know, if I'm used to going to Costco and buying ribeyes, you know, for like six bucks a pound and I walk into the butcher shop and they're 21 bucks a pound. <clears throat> Can you buy ribeyes anywhere for $6 a pound? I, I haven't shopped for meat at Costco in, I don't know, probably a decade. So I don't I know. Feel like, I I'm feel sure like it's more bargain, bargain basement discount. And this is actually, this is actually a conversation worth having on the podcast, right? So like a bargain basement uh, ribeye, it's like a USDA prime or whatever is like 8.99 i don't think it has to be prime right prime and is there really a difference in the grades i mean brian says yes but i think the farmers are going to say i think charles has got the yep. definitive answer <laughs> what what are grades yep grades <clears throat> you cut the cow between the 12th and 13th rib you look at the rib out and you compare it to a picture put out by usda and that's what a grade is. It just determines the intermuscular fat. <clears throat> what if the same amount of intermuscular fat is there, but in a finer form, and therefore you can't see it very well? It gets graded lower. So <clears throat> to me, grade has no meaning whatsoever. Um, it does in a restaurant by virtue of pricing and that sort of thing, but I don't think... Ross doesn't put a grade on the meat that's well, in his case. He doesn't care. I mean, well, it's, it's irrelevant. It's, we're, we're out of that system because we're grass-fed and grass-fed. I well, mean, there's variance, right? Nobody, I mean, it would it would be left to me to grade it, and I'm not going to grade it. So, yeah. Um, although, this is, this, I think this is interesting. Just go back to an agricultural thing right now. Beef is a commodity, uh, just like anything else. It fluctuates in price, just like anything else, except for... It fluctuates in price in a pretty predictable way. 
um, you can foresee what's going to happen. You know, unlike oil, for people example, people bid on futures for cattle. They I mean, do, they do, but the, you you can see the trend. So if there's a let's say that there's a um, a drought in Australia or Texas or something like that. All right, nobody has pasture. They flood the market. They don't keep their replacement heifers. They flood the market. The price of beef drops. Okay, the next year, those heifers, which should be having calves, are, you know, meat. Yep. So then you see the price go straight Industry back up. Shortage. And, and so yeah. you, you can see these models. Um, so there was a, I don't know, about two years ago, that, you know, Charles said, you know, the price of beef was super high. And he goes, you know, I could go down. Said this all tongue in cheek, but I could, uh, you know, I could take all my cows down to the to the stockyard and make the same amount of money all in one swoop that I do bringing you a cow a week. And I go, yep. And you know what's going to happen to that price of beef next year? And he's like, yep. So you know, we don't. Our prices do not reflect really the market. The prices reflect what it takes for Charles to raise cows because again we're not dependent on feed prices or anything else so our price literally doesn't change unless you know if he this says, brings us back to what we were talking about with barry where you have created a sustainable you have a two-way market that you've created between you and charles that allows you to keep a constant price because there is a price that charles is willing to accept for his cows and there's a price that you're willing to pay for cows that your customers are also willing to pay that keeps you in business, right? This is why, like, when we talk about problems in America, like doctors are too expensive because of tort reform and big pharma and whatever else. As soon as the transaction between a doctor and his patient is simply that, the price of medicine comes down to a reasonable deal because the doctor's not, I mean, people will die if they can't afford to get medical care, right? Well, there's transparency. Yep. And there's there could not be more transparency in what we're doing. I mean, Charles has raised the price one time by a quarter, and he gave me two months heads up and said, hey, I'm going to have to go up a quarter. And I said, that's great. And But nothing fundamental. I mean, neither of us are watching what commodity markets on beef. And I would like to clarify, since Charles is here, like being that you're a fancy doctor. <laughs> and this is not a hobby farm for you, right? Like you're actually running this as a sustainable business? No, that's, this is a business. Yep. So, I mean, I think that that's also worth noting. But I mean, when we when we localize things, like obviously people who are tourists in Saxapaha should go buy Left Bank Butchery and get themselves some meat and meet Ross. But the reality there is you should find meat in your area agriculture that's raised where you are and engage in a relationship with those people because not only are you helping local small business but you're improving the general status of agriculture in the environment that you've chosen to live in why is the sustainability so important you know let's say i don't really care about the the quality of life for the animals you know um i'm, I'm really just solely focused on this is my grocery budget. I want to eat the tastiest meat or the most healthy meat. Um, I'm not really concerned about the farmer. I'm not really concerned about the animal. Like, these are my goals and I want to meet this. Um, not that I'm advocating that philosophy. But uh, I do think that, that for most people, that is their, you know, that's their concern. And, and, and understandably so, to, to a certain extent, uh, people are working within a budget and people want to fuel themselves as best they can. Um but, you know, why choose the, the sustainable route? What is so important about that? Um, 
I mean, when folks come to the butcher shop, I can sort of put them in one of three categories. One, uh, they like the idea that this is local. They like that story. I mean, I can walk across the street to all my pigs. You know, I'm the only butcher shop in America that can walk <laughs> and see most of their animals. Um, so there's those folks, and then you have the people who are more into sustainability and animal ethics and that kind of thing. And then you have some people who just want to come in and get the highest tastiest highest quality tastiest product um we try and have a butcher shop that works on all those levels and when a customer comes in i I try and make a quick assessment as to where their priorities are typically everybody cares to some degree about all those things but they have different order of priority um that's a i mean insofar as is beef um you know, one problem with grass-fed beef is that there's a lot of not very good grass-fed beef out there. It should not come as a real surprise that the industry has been – the industry had a real incentive <coughs> to sort of standardize <coughs> beef production, okay? And that's what grain does, okay? Grain equalizes sort of everything that happened. So it, it equalized um, – so there's different breeds of cows – they come from all over the country, right? A cow lives its first seven, eight, nine months on grass, no matter what. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and so what the industry wanted to do was be able to say, okay, I'm getting these cows from all over the place. They're all different breeds. We're going to put them into a system where the quality of the beef just sort of... Yeah, reaches a low equilibrium, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. But that way that there's some consistency and there's consistency in the sizing in the cutting, all of that. Um, grass-fed beef does not have that same system. So, you know, grass-fed beef on one hand is a really easy thing to raise. Um, you just don't give it any grain, and it's grass-fed beef. What is difficult about grass-fed beef is finishing a cow on grass. That's the hard part. And that's why, you know, when Charles sends me a cow that's 1,300 pounds, I mean, most most farmers around me who are raising grass-fed beef, you know, they're taking in animals that are 900 pounds. 800 to 800. 900 pounds. Think about that. That's that's five, four to 500 pound difference. And, and that's they're mostly in fat, right? Which like, the, so the quality of meat it's, is... It's, it's in the maturing of the muscles. Okay. <clears throat> I mean, it's yeah. not just like a fat cap that gets added on. Um but there's a huge difference between those carcasses and a carcass from Charles. And so, you know, we have a lot of people who come in they say, well, I don't like grass-fed beef. And the truth of the matter is they, they might have had a justifiable experience as to why they don't like grass-fed beef. It's the easiest thing to raise and the hardest thing to raise. And This goes to just local food is better in general as a blanket statement as, as well, right? Yeah, that's – so the <clears throat> I mean, essentially what you're saying is that – that industrialized farming has played to a market that wants more healthy meat, but they've done it in a totally like cheap underhanded way. Yeah. Like, but, I mean, this brings up a great question. So, you know, let's say I've listened to this podcast and I'm now sold on the idea <laughs> that I should be buying higher quality meat. Um, you know, what do I do to find that source? And, and, you know, how do I know if going to a butcher shop, um, I mean, Ross, you mentioned, and, and I 
tend to agree with this, and it actually drives me crazy, um, that a lot of places that build themselves as butcher shops, um, or I think are like bullshit butcher shops, or like masquerading as butcher shops. Um, but Aaron they, you know. dropping J-dams of truth. <laughs> well, it, you know Softly what? Softly, it's about to get banned by every butcher shop in the country. Um, no, I, I think that when you go into a place that is buying, um, you know, buying meat in bulk, that comes, you know, off the back of a truck already cut in cases, even if they're just still doing some slicing there, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to be completely packaged. Um, that isn't, that doesn't make you a butcher shop. And I guess, you know, this is a, probably a topic we could go down as to where that line is drawn. However, um, you know, if, if I'm sold on the idea, but I don't know where to look, I don't know where to start, and I don't know how to evaluate the choices that I do find, you know, what do I do to make sure that I am evaluating it correctly, that I know that I'm getting, getting, you know, that I'm, I'm paying more, right? I'm paying more for higher quality food. Um, you know, what do I, what are the signs that I need to look for? What are the thing, the questions I need to ask to make sure that I'm, I'm getting the right stuff from the right people? Um, I, it probably comes as no surprise that there's not really a term that will work right any term that holds some validity at some point gets co-opted whether it's organic or it's grass-fed or it's pasture-raised or it's whatever you know then you read an article about what a pasture-raised egg you know from pasture-raised chicken can uh, can look like and you're thinking that is not the original meaning of that um so i'm Unfortunately, going to give you a bit of a Portlandia answer here. Yes. But <laughs> yes. Put a bird on it. Uh, no, it's. <laughs> I mean, if you and you don't even have to know anything about um, agriculture, if you can ask a farm on their time when it's appropriate, if they could come, if you could come and visit that farm. I mean, if you stood at Braeburn Farm for eight seconds and looked over that operation, you would know that this was a different kind of agriculture. And I have been to grass-fed beef farms before. We went one time together uh, to a place where, you know, the the cows were lined up in a trough, and they were eating watermelon rinds, and they all had pink eye, and they were all standing in their waist. And it was grass-fed because apparently melon rinds are not like they're still they don't count as corn <laughs> yeah they're not <laughs> corn i guess <laughs> and i mean charles and i looked at this and i thought first of all this isn't particularly good agriculture and secondly it sure as hell isn't grass-fed i mean it's not it's it's somewhat someone found a loophole around it and so you know but you know they're grass-fed just like brayburn but uh, so again, sorry with the the sort of Portlandia. Like, ask your farmer to show up and like, but a leaky farms. Can we? Can, would you say that it's a good space that these chickens were raised in? Could we see the space? Yeah. <laughs> so, what was the cow's name? Yeah. Um, so that that's from like a quality of an agricultural standpoint. Um, you're you're just not going to be able to find. Uh, a term that sort of so you do realize though that like 90 percent of the the, I, the reason that industrial farming is what industrial farming is is because most people don't know how to get access to the kind of things that we're talking about and i mean i feel like based on kind of what we were talking about earlier the natural bridge 
for most people that are like interested in improving the quality of food is farmers markets, which is a gateway directly to farms mm-hmm. like Braeburn Farms. Um, but I mean, I think the thing that people that are listening today should be really hearing from you guys is that you guys and other farms out there are raising like ethically treated quality animals, but you don't have a market that's sustainable because I mean, you know, it's a farmer's market, right? So people should be hearing that like you guys found a solution to that by introducing a local butcher shop, which brings us right back to the whole berry idea that like, Hey, if there's a need and the needs addressed in the community, you can create your own bubble of economic success. Like, we're never going to say that the left bank butchery is going to be like this world famous, like, you know, even if you're in a Netflix show, <laughs> that <laughs> I got a finger on that one. <laughs> uh, even if you're like famous for being good at what you're doing, you're not going to create a chain of left bank butcheries that are putting out quality meat all over America because it goes against the idea of what you're trying to accomplish anyway, right? Right. So, I mean, at best, in, in, in the fantasy in my brain of what, you know, the butcher shop could look like in 30 or 40 years, um, I would just hope that we would be a model. I mean, literally, there's not a stoplight in our town. That's, There's not. You're right. That's true. <laughs> um, we are not Portland. We are not Brooklyn or Austin or something like that. So I would hope that if anything, we could be a model of, hey, here's how you can connect. And I don't want to have another butcher shop because at some point that butcher shop's not going to be able to buy from Brayburn and Cane Creek and then we'll stop being what we were. Um, at best, you know, we could hopefully be a model for somebody else to say, Hey, I want to do this in my own community. Well, and I think it's worth noting too, something like when I first read Barry and he talked like, okay, this dude writes a book and he doesn't use a computer or word processor. He still uses a typewriter. Right. And you think he's dead based on the thing he's saying. It's like, this is, this is a cute and antiquated view of society. And then you're like, Oh man, he's still alive living in like, you know, the backwoods of Kentucky somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's, you know, he's a, a real genius, but he talks about how like major cities, metropolises are not sustainable because we have too high of a density of people and too low of an agricultural support system within the one day stabbing range of like that marketplace, right? So like New York City isn't sustainable, even though New York State surrounding New York City has a just ridiculously high amount of agriculture. We were talking about Rochester, New York as this, you know, it's, it's a haven for um, for sustainable agriculture in a place that, you know, used to be the center for Kodak and Xerox and a bunch of other tech companies that all crashed. You're still seeing a community that is thriving now. Um, jobs are going up, employment's on the rise, even though the major employers in the area have disappeared because it's a community that actually understood how to support itself locally. If every company, in, if a New York stock exchange crashes and nobody's doing business in New York City anymore. The people in New York are just screwed. <laughs> there's there's no sustainability there. Everything comes in on trucks. Everything, you know, it's, I mean, 24 hours without trucks and the city's going to be rioting looking for food. Um, and I think that you can choose where you live. I mean, like Portland is a good example because they're very hippie and all about sustainability. But, you know, they have enough gra- they have enough land outside of Portland to support people locally finding their own food. 
in that area. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, the sustainability of cities versus rural towns versus um, small cities. Um, I mean, that's a whole that's that's out of my realm, and no, I, another I'm not gonna, podcast. Yeah, I'm not going to weigh in on it. <laughs> but I, I mean, I do think that uh, there are sustainable ways, probably, to do cities and to do small towns, and there are not sustainable ways to do both those as well. I mean, uh, when you when somebody comes into the shop, they know me. They know that the money is going, you know, right here. I mean, we really are keeping it in a small When circle. you say right here, you're talking about going to the farm. I mean, it's going <laughs> most, most of your money when you spend it at the butcher shop is going straight to Charles or to Cane Creek. But I also, you know, I work there and I know what it takes to raise those animals. And I know that I could find them cheaper, um, but they're going to be not the quality that we want to put forward. And really, we've streamlined a lot of things in order to make, I mean, I really actually feel like we have some of the highest quality meat at, at the best, most affordable prices that we possibly could. I mean, I know that I spend more on my animals than the fancy butcher shops in New York City. <laughs> That's like, I'm, I'm pretty sure I can say that. And yet our prices do not, I mean, they're much smaller. So, you know. But we have we have a level of efficiency um, within a small system. You know, there is there is a sorry to go off on a weird direction, but there's this inherent thing that well, a model that's super small is going to be inefficient, right? But think about all the inefficiencies that we have within that that are inherent in our food system. I mean, just for starters, a grocery store throws away sometimes up to fifty percent of their food. You know how much we throw away at the butcher shop? Zero. We, like, literally don't throw away anything. I mean, if you've ever worked in a restaurant, you know just how crazy that concept is. In fact, I mean, I think most restaurants, really the number one thing they're trying to manage is waste, right? Like, all their profit or loss is often in what are we wasting. And that's why, you know, Sunday morning, you know, brunch omelet specials are <laughs> all cooked with, like, fancy dinner food that didn't sell on Saturday night. But. So, so uh, you know, if you if you look at that other model and think about what grocery stores are throwing away, that's the efficient model. That's the one that we're told is efficient. You know, we don't throw away anything. You know, we grind ground beef every single day, and it looks beautiful. And the next day, it starts to oxidize, and then it gets turned into, you know, a cooked product. It's not bad. I'm not doing anything unethical with it. I mean, we have systems, and that meat, quite frankly, is so expensive that I... <laughs> I need to keep an eye on it, which it should be. I mean, right? Um, so I, I don't. Your hot dogs are delicious too, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much everything I eat from there, I'm like, man, this is really good. <laughs> I don't think that there's anything inherently inefficient about our system. You know, um, I think that the farms, and and I think I can say this because I I work for them and I I knew the finances of them. I mean, I think this model is just a thousand times better than what we were doing before. Well, you guys I mentioned Salatin, right? Joel Salatin? Uh, S- Joel Salatin, yeah. Salatin, yeah. I, I'm from Texas. I'm going to mispronounce every name I get a chance to. So, But that guy, I mean, he's basically pitched a very, like, a very economically successful model for micro farming that people are making work. There's There's nothing inherently efficient or good for farmers when we start talking about chicken houses and working on you know contract basis for they become slaves to the uh, all of a sudden all of a sudden the price of beef 
plummets because of you know a commodity price and you know you're you're just dependent on all these really not even if a farmer wanted to sell those chickens to somebody locally he couldn't because he's already got purdue on the hook like they're gonna buy his meat yeah i I could go so deep into why that system is so fucked up (laughs) on so many levels um but i I do i want to kind of stay on the topic of you know, one of the things you mentioned, you guys, before was that you'd pack up all this meat to go to the farmer's market when you're selling at the farmer's market, and you'd bring 80% of it home. And, you know, that no one's going to the farmer's market to buy, like, beef shanks, right? Um, and <clears throat> my question is that when you go into the butcher shop, you have, one, the time to sit there and talk to the butchers, build the relationship, ask them, you know, what should I be doing what should I be buying? How can I cook this? You know, when you go to the farmer's market, at least for me, and, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe maybe other people are not feeling the same way. You know, you stand in line to buy from the farmer, and when it's your turn, you know, there might be like seven people waiting behind you, and you don't want to have a 30-minute conversation with the farmer about, like, hey, like, what should I do? What, you know, what do you recommend? What do you have the most of? Like, what should I do to cook this? You know? And most farmers, um, most farmers don't probably know. Sorry. No, I mean, <laughs> that's like, you know, <laughs> that's, sure. a, that's a different specialty. Yeah. So and um, it's no wonder, right, that people aren't, aren't buying those other cuts. Or, um, or don't feel comfortable venturing out of the strip ribeye. Yeah. But um, if I'm on a budget and I am yeah. willing to look at other, you know, other cuts of meat, you know. The, the, the first thing I would recommend is we got to kind of get away from recipes i think people food network whatever whatever game show they have on right now they call you know a cooking show like uh, brooke you came to the the um to the free cooking class this past week a huge aha moment (laughs) i no really and i think that what was really cool is you were saying depending on what part of the animal it was from is the best way to cook it and so you just need to know what category because i was one of those people i was like i don't know what to do with the beef shank we're not taught that as dietitians unfortunately and we probably should be so i was like very amazed and i'm ready to test out some braising for sure (laughs) Um, you know, I mean, I think it was very dry and I, I wanted the class to be dry. We talked about the science of meat and, and again, that may be boring, but for an hour, I think people walked out of there having learned more about cooking than they have from all their cookbooks that have pretty pictures and all those game show cook shows, whatever. If recipes don't make you a smarter cook, you follow directions. And most people who have any proficiency in the kitchen, can read a recipe and execute it but you you have nothing after that all you know is oh man where was that recipe and maybe i can do that again and what would be more useful is actually looking to some of the cookbooks uh uh, river cottage meat book is is my favorite that's the book that got me into butchery um that a lot of the guys from softly are going to buy anything called a meat book why Why the river cottage cookbook i mean because that is that is really famous yeah uh, but but i also feel like a lot of people have never heard of it famous within the the industry maybe so that that's our little bible at the shop because um and not only i mean it starts with agriculture and how animals should be raised and how to purchase them um, and, and what to look for when you go to the mar- supermarket even or w- whatever store, what you're looking for, where to be careful, what has been co-opted, everything else. And then the second half of the book is it's all about whole animals. So, you know, there's charts of the animal and, and saying like 
these recipes are going to correspond to these different parts of the animal. And then the whole second half of the book is roasting. And it'll be about five pages about what you need to know to be successful at roasting. And then there'll be one on fast cooking, four or five pages on what you need to know in order to do that. And once you, once you think about meat that way, all of a sudden you're filling your brain with some skill set um, that you're not getting when you just read a recipe. So it doesn't matter. It literally doesn't matter if you're cooking a steak or a pork chop. Well, if it's, if they're both tender enough to throw in a skillet, then agreed. And we, as Americans, like we're so ingrained in the idea, like it, it, it shows in the way that like Brooke as a dietitian is prepping people in that like Americans go to the grocery store once or twice a week and once every week or two weeks. It's like a, you know, they, they stock up for a long period of time. They fill their refrigerators, (coughs) their big refrigerators with food for a period of time. And they plan based on meals they want to cook and recipes as you're pointing out they don't know what to do like europeans and people that are doing more day-to-day shopping like they stop at a local market on their way to the house then they say i i don't know what to do with this you know like what was the what was the rolled up like skirt steak or whatever that you i got from you that had like some spices in it and you do stuff like that all the time so i'm just like (laughs) hitting i got I got a thing from you that had like some like mozzarella cheese crumbled up inside of it and some spices. What was it called? Involtini. Yeah, involtini. See, they do. So good. But I had no idea what to do with that. And I had to ask Aaron like three times. He was like, oh, you braise it and then put it in a little sauce. And, and I was like, okay. And it was delicious. But I would never have picked that up at a grocery store and been like, I'm going to make involtini as a meal. Well, so what we're trying to do is simplify and say, hey, these are universal rules, whether you're cooking a beef shank or a pork shank, right? Like the animals are both walking on them. There's going to be connective tissue. You need the connective tissue to melt, basically. That only happens at a certain temperature. This is how to reach that temperature. Again, I realize how boring that is. But once you understand that, you're like, interesting. You're like, all right. (laughs) You know, now I know how to cook. Okay, so connective tissue went from this thing that I really hated because that's why it's chewy and nasty. And if I just get it up to a high enough temperature for a prolonged amount of time, that actually melts away and becomes this really unctuous, amazing thing. And all of a sudden, shanks, which are universally the cheapest cut on every single animal, suddenly become amazing. But you need to get that connective the, tissue. The, uh, the Schweinshaxe, which... Schweinhaxen. Yeah, I mean... Looks. Yes, Aaron mispronounced something. That <laughs> I, I, I have so not that, just me. Right? I have absolutely, just got hold on, I have absolutely no idea how to. We, we say things all the time in the shop, and people go, how, how do you say that? And we say Gwen Chally, and then we go, uh, if you're in Italy and they tell you to pronounce it differently, trust them. Like, we have really no idea. <laughs> right? No, but I, I mean, that is one of, the, one of the most amazing things, I think, to come out of the shop. It looks doesn't look great in pictures, but... You know, this pork shank that you guys have braised at the shop. So you're taking, you know, 95% of the time work out of it. Goes into the oven. You warm up this basically like barbecue under the skin. And it's covered in like basically, you know, cracklings, right? <laughs> so uh, <clears throat> pretty amazing. And, and I do think that that actually, all this stuff you're talking about is kind of, in my opinion, like unlocking the secret, if you will. Of if you're on a budget and you're on limited time, like how do you eat better? 
you're like, man, I just don't have time to like do all this cooking. And and to me, what you just said is bringing it all together where it's like you can go buy higher quality meat, the less expensive cuts. And if you have a crock pot, you know, if you have a slow cooker that you can braise basically anything, right? And so you don't have to spend the time, you, you know, dump it into like the Mr. Fusion of cooking and, you know, beans, whatever liquid you want, etc., greens. And you can make these amazing meals that you can cook in bulk and you can do your meal planning that way. And w- when you do all that stuff, you know, I mean, you can, with Brooke, you can dial in like the macro content exactly how you want, right? Because, absolutely, you know, yeah. it's, it's really easy to change different ingredients in terms of quantities that you're throwing into the slow cooker. So, <clears throat> you know, to me, the like the shank is almost the the answer to the problem that no one's looking at, um, you know, as far as being able to to cook on a budget and cook healthier meat. You know, one of the things Doc said earlier was we should be eating meat that's twice as expensive and half as much. Uh, I know that, you know, there is a, <clears throat> there is a uh, you know, an element, uh, especially for guys that are on, you know, soft lead programs of, of wanting to make sure that they're getting the, you know, the protein amount that they need to get into their bodies uh, or the, their calorie caloric intake, you know, to kind of fuel a higher performance athlete. Um, but again, I think so much of that can be done. You can buy higher quality beef shanks, eat better meat for way less. You can buy like a lot of, you know, like quote unquote better cuts, even at cheaper prices in the grocery store. Um, so if I don't have a good butcher shop near me because there aren't that you know, there really aren't that many, um, you know, what, what do you recommend to people as far as finding a source for, you know, a place to, you know, a place to shop? I mean, I know, you know, most local shops don't ship because that takes them out of the kind of local, local purview of, uh, inspections and onto the USDA level, which is, you know, a much bigger requirement, uh, and much more expensive. So, you know, what, what is the answer? Um, sorry. <laughs> you like, I don't know. Move to sax. Is, is, is that the, the part answer? Where I don't chime in with my like <clears throat> joke from no, before. Well, I, I mean, there's not going to be one universal rule because some people are closer to a market than another one. And for honestly, for some people, maybe bulking up and getting a chest freezer and actually filling it up with a bunch of stuff is a more practical solution than going to your market. I mean, if you're not close by somewhere, maybe it does make sense to, to do your protein shopping two or three times a year by loading up. Um, that sounds, this is a hunter's mentality now. Like <laughs> that's the best part too, is when you hear how Aaron got into meat and it's all because his wife challenged him to not be a pussy. <laughs> she was like, <laughs> he's right. <laughs> Uh, I, like, I, I tell the I'm story. pretty sure Lisa's that was not the way she worded it. I, I'm, I'm right. willing to bet that it is exactly how she worded it because she said it to other people before. <laughs> she did. We were, man, we were at this. <laughs> we were at this wine dinner with one of Lisa's colleagues and her colleague's husband, and we're at this table. There's ten people. You know, it's like one of these things where. You know, each course had like a different glass of wine and everything was family style. And so we're there, you know, the four of us and there's six other people that we don't know. And this is the first time we even met this woman's husband. 
Um, she had just moved to the area and started working with Lisa like two months prior. And we're there, and it, I think it must have been hunting season. Lisa was talking about hunting, and this guy made the, the fatal mistake of making a comment about how he could never go hunting. Like, he just, you know, I don't, I don't have it in me to, to pull the trigger, so to speak, um, but I will never stop eating meat because it's so tasty. And if Lisa... <laughs> Just called him a coward. <laughs> like, you t- you are a coward. Um, made the rest of the dinner a little bit awkward for basically everyone at the, at the table. Um, she did not back off. And, and he, I think, was was so shocked to hear her say that that he didn't even know how to respond. Um, I do, I do think she's, great story, she's right. Um, you know, we've heard Eliza, uh, and I'm sure, Doc, you feel the same way. But I remember Eliza commenting... Years ago, you know, when her kids were much younger, that, you know, her children at, you know, like seven and eight years old understand more about, like, life and death and the cycle of life, you know, than most adults do just because they're they're witnessing that cycle on the farm so frequently. Um, and that, you know, that isn't something that is, like, vulgar. Uh, it doesn't have to be something that's violent, um, but it's also natural. And I, and I do think that, you know, kind of stepping back to what you were talking about with vegetarians, I mean, thinking about what what's on your plate, thinking about where it came from, what went, what went into that, and the fact that, you know, an, an animal did give its life to be, you know, putting food in front of you is, is important. I do think people should be conscious of that. And I, do, I think that, you know, with that, you are more likely to care. You are more likely to want to eat higher quality food. Um, and... You know, not to put garbage in your body. You know, when you think about like how low the standards can be at so many places, you don't you don't see that in the in the cheeseburger that's in front of you. Um, but when you're cooking it at home and you know where it came from, that is uh, that's really important. So it was really dangerous for us to host this podcast this close to lunch right. and then talk about food the entire time. So I'm about to just rage out. Yeah, <laughs> would it be acceptable for us to? say goodbye so that I can go eat. I think we can wrap it up and go get some lunch <laughs> let me, for sure. Let me but go back to one thing yeah, yeah. you said, and yes. that has to do with sustainability. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think su- sustainability um, becomes uh, a catchword. Uh, I don't think people really uh, appreciate um, what it really means. Uh, but uh, agriculture is uh, is intimately involved in your sustainability uh, over the long haul. And uh, I am fond of saying that I hope the time comes when farmers are paid more for their ecological services than their products. There is air that flows over my farm. What does it look like after it does? There's water that passes through my farm. What does it look like? Um, and when, uh, as a grandparent, I look at my grandchildren, uh, I can say that, that from a sustainability point of view, uh, I believe that climate change is the single most important issue facing all of us. And agriculture has a great deal to do with that. And when we look at that, we can say that there are two ways to mitigate it. We can either quit pouring, um, 
uh, CO2 into the air through fossil fuels, or we might even think about how would you take it out? And it turns out that that um, animals over grasslands are a huge piece of that sustainability. The soil organic matter on my farm has gone from less than 1% to one field that we tested this past year, which was 9% soil organic matter. And, and that's huge. Can you explain what that, what that means? Yeah. Um, when we, when we uh, test soil, uh, there is, uh, you can think of soil as dirt. It's just, it's a clay silt, um, the, the basic components of soil. Um, when you um, but soil is a living thing. It, it is not inert. And the totality of the soil is about the life in the soil. And all of those critters, for instance, bacteria um, reproduce every 20 minutes. There, there is an enormous amount of life going on underneath your feet. And as those, as the CO2 comes into the plant, comes down, ooze, and it's formed into carbohydrates, it comes down, oozes out of the roots. Uh, all of the uh, critters that live in the soil are, are eating that, eating one another. There is, I mean, you look at the critters in the, in the soil, it looks like the Star Wars bar. Uh, just an enormous uh, variety uh, of critters there. And, and as they live and die in that environment, the soil organic matter is constantly increasing because of the CO2 that is taken out of the air. And as the CO2, as the carbon in the soil um, increases, the water cycle improves. For instance, uh, 1% of increased soil organic matter means that 16 liters of water can land on a square meter and be absorbed. If we look at plowed land, land that is plowed every year, land, water lands on that and just goes sideways. It doesn't go down, it goes off. And so when we think about all the services that a farm can provide, food is only one of them. And in terms of sustainability, the, the mitigation of climate change, uh, the water cycle, uh, what's in the air, uh, uh, the quality of the food. You can go on and on with things. And, and I remember in 2005 hearing a guy in Billings, Montana, talk about that there would come a time when farmers were paid more for their ecological services than their products. And I thought that was a strange thing until I began to look into it and understand the totality of what we're doing. And that's why I come back, I would say that the most important book for a young farmer to read is Donella Meadows' book, Systems Thinking, a Primer, okay? Um, because that's what you have to start doing. You have to start thinking in systems. And oh, by the way, you're a system too. So your farm is literally sucking carbon out of the air is essentially it's what you're sucking saying. sucking carbon out of the air. Every year it gets better and better. 
and and when we look at that and and there's an entire literature on this there are there are very serious people trying desperately to figure out how much that is there are estimates that go from we can take out all the carbon since the industrial revolution began to people who say that's nonsense it's like all of science there are opinions um, everywhere and we keep searching for the answers but suffice it to say that we we can indeed suck carbon out of the air, but guess what it takes? It takes animals and plants. And proper and pasture management. Right? and plants, and it's round and round. <laughs> and a market. So all of the athletes from SoftMate who are going to listen to this, yeah. when you're saying, I can't afford a $27 a pound steak from yeah, Ross. The, the thing is, is that the $27 a pound steak uh, has, to, has to do with so many issues. Um, and the, the quality of that steak, the statement that you make by buying the steak, what happens to the money after it leaves there? For instance, and that, uh, that steak is seven or eight dollars, right? You don't eat a pound of steak. I mean, for the record, that's always surprising <laughs> to people. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, but that steak's seven dollars, and they're like, oh, well, shit, I spent six dollars going through the drive-through. I'm like, yep. Buy. And that's the most yeah. expensive. And state. you're not buying a carbon credit. Like you're more effective at combating global climate change than Al Gore. Every time you buy a Brayman <laughs> Farm steak, what are you saying? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I applaud Al Gore's um, uh, uh, efforts at at uh, uh, education and so on. It's just that um, on my farm, uh, I realize it's one farm. And if you've seen one farm, you've seen one farm because they're all different. Uh, but uh, each farm uh, can make a difference. And collectively, uh, I think we can make a huge difference. And that is, of course, one of my uh, biggest uh, disappointments is to see huge swaths of the United States plowed up with all the CO2 that's been stored in that soil over eons being oxidized and going back into the air. Um, we have areas in the Midwest where the soil organic matter was upwards of 15%. Today it's down to 2 to 4%. Um, and what happened to all that carbon? It was oxidized and went back into the air. Um, so sustainability is a multifaceted term, um, and uh, I, I hope we um, we look at it in that context. I know we we pitch a lot of the time here how important it is for people to pursue their passion, and that you know like when you find something you're passionate about. It's obvious in the way that you talk. So it's a real pleasure to have like, you and Ross here today and see two people who have like, found their passion and are pursuing it. And they're not just talking about something they believe in. They're actually doing what it is that they think will make a difference in the world around them. Thanks for having us. Yep. Thank you. Thanks for coming on, guys. Um, real quick, if we want to learn more about what you guys are doing, where can we, where can we find you online? Uh, leftbankbutchery.com, and I think we have quite a bit about Brayburn on there. Yeah, my website is woefully lacking. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to put that it's, nicely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you might, you might super be super weird there. It's like, what is, uh, yeah, can we find you guys on the Instagram? dot <laughs> com. But um, uh, I have uh, uh, quit trying to sell meat from the farm. I much prefer... 
to raise cows, let let uh, Ross uh, put them into delicious cuts and and educate the public and and that division of labors is there for a reason because I farm, he butchers. We're gonna get Ross Great. to start an apprenticeship program at the butcher shop. We talked about it earlier. Perfect. <laughs> Doug, you're going to be the first one. Oh, I'm there, man. Are you kidding me? But I, the first thing we're going to do is have a cleaver. Ross is going to disown me. You're going to get like a, a little <laughs> no, butcher, a cleaver, cleaver tattoo worry. behind your ear. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, guys. We really appreciate it.